Nietzsche states in Beyond Good and Evil, I would really allow myself to order the ranks of philosophers according to the rank of the laughter, right up to those who are capable of golden laughter. And assuming that the gods also practice philosophy, a fact which many conclusions have already driven me to, I don't doubt that in the process they know how to laugh in a superhuman and new way, and at the expense of all serious things. Gods delight in making fun, even where sacred actions are concerned, it seems they cannot stop laughing. Nietzsche suffered from serious physiological disease throughout his life, and was preoccupied with trying to come up with solutions to face nihilism as the terminal sickness of the West. Throughout his work, he often made mention of childlike play, dance and laughter, and through this he overcame his pain and disease. According to Walter Kaufman, for Nietzsche, laughter represents an attitude toward the world, toward life, and toward oneself. Nietzsche frequently laughs, and he especially recommends laughing at oneself. Laughing at someone or something, including oneself, is a way of expressing contempt for that thing or person. This is important for those who want to ask clear-eyed questions about the values, phenomena, institutions and people that they cherish. Laughter makes it possible, if only briefly, to achieve some distance from things one loves, thereby enabling a less biased evaluation of their worth. It enables one to take oneself less seriously, and admit that some of one's cherished beliefs are most likely false. As well as targeting others for laughter, Nietzsche often has laughter directed at him. Nietzsche does not speak of just any laugh, but of a laugh that comes from the depths of man. It is from that depth that one must learn to laugh the superhuman laugh. This laughter arises from the state of anguish and suffering. Perhaps best described in his masterpiece Thus Spoke Zarathustra, where the prophet Zarathustra talks about the laughs of the herd and the laughter of the height. After ten years of solitude in the mountains, he descends back into the world of men to share his wisdom with others, and thus requires a going under. In the marketplace of the nearest town, he stands in front of a crowd and gives a speech on the übermensch, which he calls the meaning of the earth, and the most contemptible last man, who is perfectly happy to be virtually the same as everyone else. After Zarathustra's speech, he is greeted with a scornful laughter, indeed a laughter of the herd. The crowd mockingly tell him to make them not into the übermensch, but into the last man. With this may be contrasted the laughter of the height. Zarathustra is confronted with a young shepherd, into whose mouth a heavy black snake has entered and bitten into the shepherd's throat. Try as he might, Zarathustra cannot tuck the snake from the agonized shepherd, so he urges him to bite off his head. The shepherd bit as my cry had advised him. He bit with a good bite. He spat far away the snake's head and sprang up. No longer a shepherd. No longer a man. A transformed being, surrounded with light, laughing. Never yet on earth had any man laughed as he laughed. Oh, my brothers, I heard a laughter that was no human laughter. And now a thirst consumes me. A longing that is never stilled. My longing for this laughter consumes me. Oh, how do I endure still to live? And how could I endure to die now? However, Zarathustra cannot endure to die now because he has not yet laughed this extraordinary superhuman laughter. The urge to do so drives him on, and eventually his consuming thirst is quenched. The real culmination comes when Zarathustra embraces his most abysmal thought, the eternal recurrence, which might be described as the event for the sake of which the whole book exists. The best afterlife we can experience is none other than another repetition of the life we just experienced, for eternity. It is the ideal of the most high-spirited and world-affirming individual. 
But if everything eternally recurs, this includes that which is small in man. Confronted with this thought, Zarathustra is so sickened that he is unable to get up, eat or drink for seven days. After this period and despite life's horrors and suffering, Zarathustra stands up and gives the highest affirmation of life possible. He becomes a yes-sayer, loving life as it is. Later, Zarathustra comes across a number of higher men. While Nietzsche intends the reader to regard these higher men as superior to the herd, they are inferior to Zarathustra and are a long way from the figure of the Übermensch. Each of these men are some incomplete aspect of Zarathustra's experience. Having already experienced the joy of the height, Zarathustra is capable of being more playful than the higher man, and, announcing that they need someone to make them laugh, offers to play that role himself. Rejecting the adoration poured on him by one of the higher men on behalf of his fellows, Zarathustra tells them that, You may all be higher men, but for me, you are not high and strong enough. What must follow are higher, stronger, more victorious, more joyful men. Such as are square building body and soul, laughing lions must come. The laughing lion is a reference to one of the three metamorphoses of the human spirit, the others being the camel and the child. The spirit first becomes a camel, but not everybody can become a camel. There are many heavy things for the spirit, things that weigh upon us, our vanity, the satisfaction of our appetite being the center of attention. A camel requires us to be greater than ourselves, and that requires some sacrifice. The strength longs for the heavy. What is heavy? Thus asks the weight-bearing spirit. Thus it kneels down like the camel and wants to be well laden. What is the heaviest thing, you heroes? Is it not this, to debase yourself in order to injure your pride? To let your folly shine out in order to mock your wisdom? Nietzsche suggests that when we feel proud of ourselves, we are to take on even more weight, to show that we are not that great after all. In other words, to humble ourselves. The weight-bearing spirit takes on these heaviest things like a camel hurrying laden into the desert. Here's where we undergo a new transformation. We become the lion. Now that those burdens are gone, the lion wants to take on freedom, but is confronted by the mightiest of dragons, on every scale of which is a rule, every thou shalt compile since the beginning of time. The lion must fight back and oppose the dragon, saying, I will, uttering the sacred no. However, the lion lives in rebellion. It has yet to undergo a final and last transformation, becoming the child. The child is innocence and forgetfulness, a new beginning, a game, a self-propelling wheel, a first motion, a sacred yes. Having uttered the sacred no to reject everything that came before, the child shouts the sacred yes that affirms life. The loss of shame, compassion and childlike spirit will be the step that leads to freedom, by doing that it wins its own world. With no more burdens or no's, he can create his own values, and not to be left with superfluous pleasures that hinder a full enjoyment of the existence. The spirit of heaviness also comes in part from a tradition that has denied and excluded laughter, linking it to the ridiculous and to buffoonery. Laughter is still a matter for a few, and it has yet to regain its sacred place in the world. Zarathustra's praise of laughter in his speech to the higher man is ecstatic. He urges them to learn to laugh at yourselves, as a man ought to laugh, contrasting himself with Jesus, who wishes woe to you who laugh now. Zarathustra has an alternative to Jesus' crown of thorns. This laughter's crown, this rose-wreath crown, I myself have set this crown on my head, I myself have canonized my laughter. 
He describes himself as Zarathustra the Laughing Prophet, and the speech ends on another passionate exhortation to the higher man to learn to laugh. Laughing lions, then, are what the higher man have to become in order to embrace the eternal recurrence and laugh the laughter of the height, which they eventually do. Nietzsche makes the puzzling statement that one has the power to create oneself. By this, he means that we are a continual process of integrating our character traits, habits, and patterns of action with one another. However, this creation can only take place after achieving the final metamorphosis of the child, representing a new beginning. This is an incredibly difficult task, and even once it is achieved, it is only the unification of one's past with one's present. There is still the future to consider. Thus, becoming who one is cannot be some final goal that can be met with the laughter of the height. And yet, Zarathustra becomes what he is, achieving superhuman laughter. Perhaps this is because he laughs at the comedy of existence, including his own existence, because he knows that in the background there is nothing but absurdity and emptiness. A suggestion to this effect comes from the gay science, where he states, "Perhaps even laughter still has a future. Perhaps laughter will then form an alliance with wisdom. Perhaps only gay science will remain." At present, things are still quite different. At present, the comedy of existence has not yet become conscious of itself. At present, we still live in an age of tragedy, in the age of moralities and religions. But the person who attains the height can laugh at all tragedies, real or imaginary. From the vantage point of the height, there is nothing that cannot be amusing, and the ultimate joke is life itself. The person whom Zarathustra has become, the one who realizes that becoming what he is involves constant self-creation, that there is in life no final goal, and yet is able to laugh at this realization in a superhuman manner, takes on a humorous attitude to life. What Zarathustra has learned, the vital skill upon which his liberation and self-overcoming is dependent, is the ability to laugh at himself as a man ought to laugh, rather than resorting to some sort of bad faith, as existentialist Jean-Paul Sartre puts it. Nietzsche laughs at the pointlessness of life. Thus, when Zarathustra laughs the laughter of the height, the constant self-creation which he will need to continue throughout the rest of his life is, it seems, at that point, not a burden. By embracing eternal recurrence, Zarathustra is bringing to life itself that spirit of childlike playfulness, which is so common an element in humor. Creating our own values to live by is essential if we are to give any meaning to our lives. Yet there is no ultimate reason or justification for our particular set of values, other than that which we ourselves provide. As suggested, the laughter of the height results to an important degree from the perception of this incongruity. There's a lot we can learn from reading Nietzsche on laughter, regardless of the possible moral objections that may be raised against laughing at all tragedies, real or imaginary. Zarathustrian laughter highlights the sense of humor's potential to make your world bigger, from your childlike new beginning of being amenable to seeing things in a new way or from a new perspective, and to realize that there are more ways of looking at the world than you previously acknowledged or of which you were even aware of. The social aspects of humor and the pleasure of sharing a joke brings a feeling of togetherness. There are obvious advantages to feeling part of a group. However, being part of a group means obeying certain rules or risk being ostracized. Zarathustra loves the laughter of the height because, as the solitary individual, he is free from these constraints. To follow Zarathustra is no easy task. It means making some hefty sacrifices. 
We have a fundamental desire for security, whether it be reason, science, the church, family, friends, or our own attractiveness, intelligence, or charm. These anchors provide our security, but they thwart the full development of our capacity for humor. It is precisely these security blankets that Zarathustra at the height challenges us to throw away. He has, unlike the rest of us, freed himself from and stood outside the accepted shared perspective of his particular clique or society. It is this which has allowed his horizons to be expanded by reaching the height, and in the extreme freedom from constraints, the sense of humor reaches its maximum potential. The suggestion in Nietzsche that the perception of the comedy of existence and Zarathustra's laughter of the height emphasizes a vitally important point, that the tragic and the comic are not polar opposites, but interlinked modes of experience. Nietzsche ranks among those who suffer from the overabundance of life, and know the intensity of the pleasure-pain of creation. Perhaps I know best why man is the only animal that laughs. He alone suffers so excruciatingly that he was compelled to invent laughter. The unhappiest the most melancholy animal is, as might have been expected, the most cheerful. Thus, Nietzsche suggests descending into discomfort, into a deeper displeasure, in order to obtain from there a more intense pleasure, he says. But what if pleasure and pain should be so closely connected that he who wants the greatest possible amount of the one must also have the greatest possible amount of the other? That he who wants to experience the heavenly high jubilation must also be ready to be sorrowful unto death? This quote shows the harmony between opposing forces that Nietzsche has not only discovered or perceived in a theoretical way, but has known how to experience firsthand as the most intense pain and the most effusive joy, reaching a feeling of joy worthy of God's. The strongest are those who can think of man within a significant reduction in his value, without thereby seeing themselves diminished. Nietzsche urges us to recognize the limits we are all subject to in order to return us to the humble but noble earthbound beings that we are. Set amidst all the serious issues that his writings detail, the death of God, the Übermensch, the world of power, the eternal recurrence, comedy and laughter resound in his thinking of the excessiveness that often attempts to transcend our being human or too human. Being human is not a reason for despair, it presents to us opportunities of affirmation that allow us to say yes to life, so that we may transfigure our state into joy. Thus, comedy and laughter are embedded deep within Nietzsche's thought. And where there is laughter and joviality, it is not worth thinking. Indeed, comedy must be included within the very art that Nietzsche proclaims as the highest task and the true metaphysical activity of this life. The comedy and laughter Nietzsche's writings and thought are there as provocations to rethink our relationship to each other and the philosophical endeavors that bestow value and meaning to existence, that is, at times, both tragic and absurd. Until we come to grips with our science, moralities, and religion in terms of the reach and measure, we will remain mired in the eternal comedy of existence, and the joyful laughter of affirmation will remain a not yet and only a hope for the future. The provocative laughter found in Nietzsche's texts is the affirmation of amor fati. It is part of an authentic response of a subject in affirming being here as part of the world. I want to learn more and more to see as beautiful what is necessary in things. Then I shall be one of those who make things beautiful. Amor fati. Let that be my love henceforth. I do not want to wage war against what is ugly. I do not want to accuse. I do not even want to accuse those who accuse. Looking away shall be my only negation. And all in all, and on the whole, 
Someday, I wish to be only a yes-sayer.